Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, businesses and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you an enthusiastic client-focused lawyer? Morris Blackburn Lawyers are hiring a lawyer, associate or senior associate with experience in personal injuries to join their team in Townsville. They offer a safe, supportive and collaborative environment backed by inclusive leadership and progressive policies. You'll manage your own file load with heaps of support from the team. Are you ready to join them and make a journey to extend uh, access to justice for more Australians? If so, apply by going to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Hello. And welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast, which is meant to be out every Friday. I don't think this one's going to drop until Saturday. I'm taping this one uh, on a Friday in New York. So uh, it's already like the wee hours of Saturday morning. Hopefully um, um, my producer, Rebecca, can get this out to you um, ASAP, but you'll be probably getting this one on uh, on Saturday afternoon. I apologise for that. Um, that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad and obviously they're uh, the campaign and the people that we're talking to today are abroad as i said before we are in new york city and we're going to be talking to uh, jessica garcia uh, who works for the retail wholesale and department store union which is a national union that covers obviously all of those workers and a whole bunch of other people as well um and uh, we've had someone on from this union before and we're just picking up the conversation on a bunch of things that the union are working on, in particular, in organising in Amazon, which is tough work, plus um, farm workers, cannabis workers, and then we have a bit of a broad conversation about the relationship between uh, the union movement and uh, the the Democratic Party, and 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 I guess the rise of unionism here in the United States since uh, since COVID. So hopefully you enjoyed today's episode, and if you like the show, please give us five stars on Apple Podcast or on Spotify when you're done listening to the episode. Uh, leave a review on um, Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And for all the latest updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, links, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Friday afternoon on the lands of the Lenape people. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. The native tribe in this area I when i um l e n a p e uh, i say that because when i introduce my uh uh podcast back home in australia i always acknowledge the the, the, the traditional it's owners lenape lenape okay yeah. thank you uh but we're in midtown manhattan uh in the offices of the retail uh wholesale department store union the rwdsu it's taken me about three years to get that acronym right <laughs> Um, and joining me uh, on, the, on today's podcast is uh, Jessica Garcia, who is the assistant to the president of the union. Jessica, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you. Um, now, we actually just had a long conversation about Yankees and Red Sox, which we um, didn't record. We probably should have, actually. A lot of the, uh, my listeners know I try and work in some sort of Red Sox reference into my podcast. That's horrible. I know. Um, and I'm amazed that this conversation is going to continue today, <laughs> given that we are now rivals. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about the things that unite us as opposed to the things that uh, divide us. Um, and obviously that's uh, the, the, the trade union movement or the labour movement or the labour union movement, as you call it here in the United States. But before we do, tell us about yourself. How did you get into this kind of work? Um, it's a bit long-winded, but I uh, began my career uh, focused on education advocacy. And in doing that work, I quickly discovered that as much as I really cared about schools and the opportunities that opened up for particularly black and brown uh, students from low-income neighborhoods, at the end of the day, if we really wanted to give these families an opportunity to really succeed, we need to think about the economy and what kind of opportunities they had at work. So I transitioned and went to work at a worker center, working with uh, newly arrived immigrants who were mostly day laborers working in construction and domestic workers. And in that work, I got involved in some legislative work where we built coalitions and I got an opportunity to work with labor and learned about the RWDSU, its work with car wash workers, 
who are mostly undocumented immigrants from Latin America and was just really inspired uh, by the risk that they took in organizing that industry um, and how they went about doing that, partnering with community organizations to reach them in a way that built trust, um, created just long-term sustainable success, not just in a contract, but in the other supports that immigrant workers need. And when an opportunity opened up at the union, I just applied and jumped for it. Um, what, uh, what do you enjoy about your job? Well, my day-to-day is always very different, um, and that's something that I just, I like. I don't, uh, I'm, I'm an expert of nothing, but that's okay with me because every day I get to see a different part of our union, uh, get to meet uh, workers from all different walks of life because we're an amalgamated union. We don't just represent one industry, um, and we're national, so we also have just different things, different um, conditions and political climates that we need to think about, um, and um uh, and yeah, I get getting to work with this team here at this union. We're um, pretty, very collaborative, very uh, a good a good team of, of people, really committed. Um, and the RW in particular is just a very it's considered one of the more progressive unions. Um, and so it's really inspiring to be able to work with people who not just uh, believe in unions and what labor brings, but also in how we can make society better and more inclusive. Going back um, to, um, I guess, the formative years of your life, do, can you think of a, a moment or moments that shaped your values that you um, that guide you to who you are today and the work that you do today? Yeah, I mean, I I was born in Honduras. Um, my mom was a live-in domestic worker. Um, and the reason I know English is because she worked for a family where the, the wife was from the U.S., um, and I got to live in that household and hear her talk to her children in English. Um, and once she realized, as a you know two-year-old, that I was picking up English as a you know as my well, not even not, not my primary language, but I was picking it up. Um, this family decided to put me through school, um, and I got to go to a bilingual school. Went w- went to school with with her children, um, and through this family's work in the community, the opportunities they gave me, um, I just I don't know that that completely changed how I viewed the world and what I wanted to give back as well. So when I came to this country. I was always thinking about how lucky I was with all the opportunities that were given to me, and I wanted to be able to de- devote my life to service of some in, in some way. Um, we had uh, a colleague of yours on the podcast in uh, August last year, two thousand and twenty-one, uh, Lawrence Ben, mm-hmm. uh, and we had a most of the podcast was dedicated to talking about the Amazon campaign in Bessemer, Alabama. Um, we're not going to relitigate that campaign. But I do suggest um, listeners to go back to episode, I think it's 103, and have a listen to that campaign if you want to get an idea of um, what the union did and the challenges they sought in trying to unionise uh, this Amazon warehouse in, um, in Alabama. Um, but what I want to do today is get an update from you about where we are with that campaign because um, when we spoke to Lawrence last time, you just lost the vote mm-hmm. and you're in that sort of process of starting to re-strategize and where do we go from here. Um, what's happened since um, we last spoke to the union? So, and you said that was in 2021? That was August 2021. Okay. So we um, were given an opportunity to have a second election um, because of all the anti-union action that Amazon um, put forth during the election. The National Labor Relations Board uh, ruled that they violated the law and that the results didn't count. So we um, opened up another campaign with the workers, um, had another election earlier this year, uh, and it's uh, that decision is still pending. Uh, it was uh, it was a very close vote. Um, the uh, Amazon um, uh, is is leading by a small margin. Um, there are some contested ballots um, that remain, um, but there's also ULP charges that have been filed. That's unfair labor practices charges um, that have been filed um, because the company still um, did some pretty. Um, ugly things with the workers, uh, mainly around um, just the kind of uh, retaliatory actions that they took uh, during the election process that... Such as? um, uh, Potential firing workers, um, telling workers that um, the company's going to, if they vote for the union, the company's going to close in that location, they would relocate. Um, And so these charges are still pending. The, The board still needs to rule on them. 
But if they rule in the workers' favor, um, it's very likely that they would call for another election. So we could be looking at a third election, uh, timing of which we don't know. It really mm. depends on when the board takes action and then what they decide uh, beyond that. Um, but we're, we're kind of in a bit of in-between. Um, the organizers are still meeting with workers. The work organizing committee is still meeting on a regular basis. It's actually been growing the last few weeks from what I hear. Um, and the workers themselves have, um, you know, there's been so much activity around Amazon organizing around the country that um, they've, and they've all been gathering in all these different spaces that they themselves are now organizing themselves nationally um, and looking for ways to support each other as they're organizing locally. How, uh, can I ask how close is the vote? Compared to the first ballot that you had? Oh, I wish I had prepared. Um, it's, <laughs> okay, it's, it it's a little bit over, I think it's a little over 100. Okay, that's close. It's really close. Because the, from memory, the first ballot, there was a substantial, it was like, did the union get like 35 it, it was. Yeah, it was, it was very lopsided. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. Now, from memory, Lawrence was telling me in the last podcast that there were a number of things that, that Amazon had done mm-hmm. That the national, what's the name of the the, the NLRB? Yeah, the board had said, okay, that's you can't do this, you can't do that, can't do that. Yeah. Um, in this second ballot, you had, did they use those same uh, anti-union, union busting tactics again, or did they change their strategy? Um, they pretty much did it all over again. Although, um, you know, they still had the mailbox, uh, which was an issue. They no lo- they were no longer stopping traffic, uh, the changing the traffic lights. Um, uh, to prevent the organizers to, from talking to workers. Um, they were a little bit more cautious, but, you know, they still had the mandatory meetings where they made folks come in and, mm. and hear the union bus, you know, you know, anti-union messaging, yep. which isn't uh, technically illegal or wasn't technically illegal. Actually, no, that's to be debatable whether whether it's legal or not. Um, the NLRB um, uh, board, the the board has actually indicated that it, it may not be legal for them to do that, but we actually need an, an official ruling to make it make it so. Um, they were still as aggressive. They were still posting, you know, anti-union messaging all over the facility. That's not necessarily illegal, but it was a really strong multi-million dollar effort devoted to union busting, um, both in Alabama as well as in in New York, where. Uh, workers at the facility here did win their vote to um, to unionize. Yeah. The um, talk to us about some of the lessons that the union um, took from. I guess after you probably lost the first ballot, you probably sat down and had a bit of a, an evaluation and a debrief about your organising efforts. Can you speak to some of the lessons learned from the first ballot that you made adjustments to the way that you organised in the second one? Because obviously it had some success because the numbers were closer this time for the yeah. second ballot? Well, for the second one, we had more time to um, to plan for this. Um, we, we had a, when we had originally filed for an election the first time around, we thought we were looking at a facility of a thousand, maybe two thousand. And by the time we filed, and the you know Amazon learned that we were we were organizing, uh, they unleashed a list of six thousand workers, or you know five thousand, um, close to six thousand workers. So it was a much larger facility than we had expected. And mm-hmm. so then we had to actually very last minute just put in a lot of resources to do this. We were able to get some some help from other unions or from the national AFL CIO. Um, but the second time around, we uh, we were able to build a much bigger um, team. Uh, we had upwards of I think a dozen, thirteen different unions uh, lending support, sending organizers down there. Uh, we had close to a hundred organizers on the ground um, during the, the the main part of the mm-hmm. of the campaign. Um, so it was it was really exciting to be down there and to see all the activity um, that was happening. We trained a lot of workers to to be organizers, um, and other unions did as well. So they were sending their you know their future organizers down there as well. So it was, it, it was almost a bit of a training hub, but it was a you know a great place to learn. Um, we also, um, you know, the first time around, one of the reasons people heard about it so much is because we we realized that the going against this massive company with all this money was going to, you know, it was David and Goliath and we were, we needed to use every single tool in our, to, in our tool, toolkit. Um, and so we used the media a lot. 
uh, and we took our campaign to the public um, public sphere. And um, what we learned is that um, it took a lot of effort um, to do that. And while everybody really appreciated hearing about the campaign and got excited about the campaign, um, for us, we really needed to devote the resources to the ground game. And so we were less present in the media. You didn't hear about, the, uh, about what was mm, happening day to day. Um, but that was on purpose. Uh, we just really felt it was really important to focus on the ground, like we do with our other campaigns. Usually organizing campaigns aren't in the media. Um, and so, you know, for better or worse, we chose to do that. Um, it really helped the organizing team, though, and it really helped the organizing committee to stay focused uh, on what they needed to get accomplished. And, and the difference showed um, in the results. I'm interested in uh, the types of trainings that you were doing with mm -hmm. the, the the workers. What mm -hmm. kind of what, what what type of skills were you in trying to impart on them? Well, basics. Um, so, you know, some of them knew what uh, what uh, being what, what a union election was like, um, but not many people do. Um, the, the South has a history of union of unions, but not in recent history. Uh, and so, uh, you know, what it means to go through a union election, what it means to go through the board, what does it mean to have, you know, to sign a card saying that you want to join a union. Um, so explaining the whole process to them and also what the campaign needs to look like. But most importantly, uh, they got training on how to have those conversations with other workers, uh, right? Like, how do, you, how do you start that? How do you start identifying issues and bringing people along? Um, it's not a sales pitch, right? It's a, it's a conversation. Um, and sometimes that's hard for people to get, that it's, you're not selling the union, you're, you're, you're making connections about wh why working together to bargain for better, better terms and, and agreements with the company is, is worthwhile. Um, and so learning th those kind of, um, th you know, those kind of tactics or strategies and, 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 and also talking points uh, of how to go about that. Um, and then, you know, as the committee formed, um, the organizers did a lot of work uh, around inclusivity, about what it means to work together and making sure folks weren't jumping ahead to a victory before they need to, but really take the time to, bu to build what they need to build um, as, you know, in the mo at whatever moment they were in it during the campaign. Uh, talk to us about the – I'm interested – in that remark you said before about the South, because um, mm -hmm. this is Alabama. Yeah. Um, I've not been to Bessemer, but I have been to Alabama. I've been to um, Montgomery. Um, and it has a different vibe to New York, that's for sure. <laughs> um, w w the demographics of the workers in that particular facility, um, you know, uh, old, young, male, female, um, ethnicity, wh who are the types of people that are going and working in uh, a factory uh, uh, an Amazon factory in Bessemer, Alabama. How long do they stay there for? What's you know what's what's the what's the uh, what's the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The retention of the of the workforce. So yeah. talk to us a bit about that. So the workforce is predominantly African American, black, uh, mostly women. The um, age is is pretty diverse, um, but we do we know we I know for our organizing we 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 knew that we needed to have. Uh, a strategy for young workers and a strategy for older workers. Um, and the young workers were the harder ones to actually uh, bring on board initially because they had no idea what unions were and uh, didn't necessarily have the history within their family about, mm -hmm. about being, being part of a union. Um, so it's a bit mixed. Um, and then in terms of uh, retention, um, you know, it's pretty public. Amazon has a really high um, attrition rate. The turnover rate is, I think, 150%. Um, and so lots and lots of turnover. Um, I, I think that uh, for our second election, uh, we, we had very, very few people who had been there for the first one. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of educating all over again to, you know, thousands of workers. It's almost like um, when I was a union organiser for the retail union in Australia, it, was like, it sounds like, like organising fast food. You'd go and sign everyone up and then come back three weeks later and it's a whole new crew that's working that McDonald's store. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's, um, it's, so it's interesting because Amazon prides itself on its benefits. Uh, they promote uh, how you can go to Amazon and go to school and they'll pay for your education and you can think about your future through them. Um, and... P people, very few people stick around long enough to actually get these benefits. Um, and so uh, they claim to really want to keep you for at least a year or longer, but um, we, we're not seeing that. It's, the, the work is way too difficult. It's uh, too grueling, physically draining, um, and the company doesn't actually show loyalty to the workers in, in the way that would make them stick around. Staten Island, there's an Amazon facility up here mm -hmm. um, in, in one of the boroughs of New York. Uh, that 
got unionised. I did. Just recently. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the success behind that campaign. Why did that happen? Well, my, um, my, my own theory on this is that they were organising in New York. Right. Um, and that means that you have workers who know unions, who have family members in unions, who know what the union difference is, and um, who are, you know, clearly wanted to fight for it um, because they, they knew what that is. Um, and so they had very more knowledgeable workers uh, overall on what, what, what a union can do. Um, and then they had a lot of public support. Every, you know, we had elected officials going down there and showing their support. We had, you know, many unions down there showing their support and, and helping out. And um, it was just, it's, it was the talk of the town too. Um, and every, you know, like there was, there was, there was no reason for anybody to fear retaliation, no reason for anybody to fear that the company would shut down and leave. That's, uh, that just was, that, that wouldn't fly in New York. And we had the attorney general um, here in the state, the highest attorney of, you know, of our state, uh, filing charges against the company for their health and safety violations for putting, uh, for putting workers at risk um, and willing to take on uh, the company here in New York for, for how they were running their, you know, the, the, that facility. So the, you know, the echoes were very supportive of worker organizing. Um, and you know, the, they had, uh, they had an amazing organizing committee, uh, very militant, uh, willing to take, uh, to go during their break times and get into the company and talk to workers in the lunchroom and, um, just 110%, um, you know, really, really involved in, in this campaign. Uh, and, that energy really, really helped. Um, the other thing is that the company really messed up. Um, they had two of the leaders arrested when they tried to go into the facility, and folks knew these two leaders really well. Um, they were well liked. They are well liked. Um, and when the company takes that kind of aggressive action against somebody for organizing, that's going to get around. And it didn't help the company um, to take that kind of action against them. Um, and it seems now that that's uh, – am I right in thinking that that has now led to a bit more confidence with workers uh, when wanting to try and organise and unionise against Amazon? Because is there another one coming up in Albany? Just Today. Right, okay. Because <laughs> I read it in the New York Times yesterday. Tell mm-hmm. us about that campaign. I actually don't know too much oh, about right, it myself. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Um, I know that they've, um, they're working with ALU, the Amazon Labor Union, that organized in Staten Island um, and sought their support in, in organizing. And if they do win their election, they want to join with ALU. Um, and it's, it's a tough one up there. We'll see. Um, I don't know whether it's which way it's going to go, but I'm, I'm really rooting for them. Um, let's uh, move off Amazon and talk about some of the other areas that the union is uh, organizing agriculture workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to talk for a while and let you get a drink there. Um, I, I find it interesting that the the retail uh, wholesale department store is organising farm workers, and I'm sure you're going to explain this to me in a moment, um, but I shouldn't um, poke fun at that because when I used to work for the Transport Workers Union, I used to organise white-collar call centre workers, uh, part of these crazy amalgamations that happen in unions, both obviously in Australia and the United States, we ma- amalgamated with the Gas Workers Union that looked after both white colour and blue colour gas workers, which had a gas uh, call centre. And then I used to go in there and try and organise these workers and say, hi, I'm from the Transport Workers Union. And they were like, who that? Why are you in this? You're in the wrong building. But anyway, yeah. they're still joined. <laughs> um, so how the hell is the RWDSU organising farm workers? Um. We got involved in uh, farm worker organizing before farm workers could organize in New York. Um, agricultural workers and domestic workers are two groups of workers that were excluded from the National Labor Relations Act uh, when, it was, when it was enacted um, uh, in the 1930s. Um, so they're, inclu- in, they're considered excluded workers, no organizing rights, um, no, you know, not n- no protections around that. Is this nationally? Um, nationally. So in New York, um, there have been a 25-plus year campaign to give agricultural workers in New York State the right to organize. Uh, And uh, in 2019, we finally had the political alignment in our state legislature to move that bill forward, and we had a governor who was willing to sign it. 
um, not because he voluntarily wanted to do it, but we just had, we, we built up enough um, pressure that it, uh, it was really hard to turn away from doing that. And in passing that legislation, we, uh, we won the right for agricultural workers to not just organize into a union, but to a day of rest, to uh, overtime pay, to access to benefits that they didn't have before, like workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, actually not unemployment because they're undocumented necessarily, but if they're documented, they could access unemployment insurance, um, disability benefits, uh, all these things. Um, and so that was something we supported overall. We represent food retail workers, food manufacturing, food processing all around the country. So we are the food union, and we really saw agriculture as an extension of that. Um, and. Uh, once we won the right to organize, we went in and started organizing. Um, and so we, we got our first farm certified last year. Uh, we've had uh, six certified in that time. Um, it's been slow going. There's a lot of learning happening. Uh, we aren't governed by the NLRA. Therefore, we can't go to the NLRB, that board, for our organizing and our elections. We have our own state agency doing that here in New York. And they weren't really ready for that work yet. So we've been slowly learning with them mm -hmm. on, on how to do this well and do it quickly because we're, we're working with workers who face a lot of um, intimidation for organizing and for exercising their rights. And we need ag the agency to be quick. And so uh, we're, we're trying to get them aligned before we really build this campaign more uh, to make sure we're not exposing workers too soon. Uh, to employer retaliation. How big is this industry in New York? The types of workers, what's their story? What's their background? What's their experiences? Sure. Um, so the exact numbers of the workforce is a little um, unknown. There's not good documentation of it. We estimate upwards of fifty to 80,000 agricultural workers in the mm. state. Um, we are uh, one of the top producers of apples um, in the country, uh, strong dairy, uh, we also bring in a lot of um, resources around nurseries and and want we have good wine here in New York as well, surprisingly. Um, and it's uh, predominantly uh, Latino, uh, some Caribbean. Um, we have we do have lots of guest workers as well, but we have a lot of farm workers who do this for a living year round um, and who depend on it for their livelihood. Mm -hmm. And um, where is the union trying to take this campaign next? Like, uh, I, I just found it interesting when we first talked about this mm -hmm. when we had the um, session with the Dunn Street delegation. You know, the most famous sort of group of organisers for organising a farm workers, obviously, is Cesar Chavez and Doris Huerta and the United Farm Workers mm -hmm. down in Southern California. So I just assumed that once that was fixed in the 60s, <laughs> that the problems were, were resolved for farm workers across the United States. Clearly, I was um, wrong in that assumption. Where are you trying to go now with this campaign to organise, you know, these 60,000 workers? And how do you? What are the challenges with them being undocumented? How do you get around that? Like, uh, it's, um, you know, the challenges with uh, an immigrant workforce period is really their experience with unions abroad um, and making sure that they they see that our how we how labor operates in the U.S. is not how labor necessarily operates in their home countries, um, that they are, they are worker-led um, institutions, that um, they're not, you know, in cahoots with the company. They're not mm -hmm. company unions. They're actually work, work legitimate worker unions. That's interesting. Um, and so we, we, we do a lot of work educating workers ar around that and what it, what it means that it's their union, not our union. It's their union. Um, and, um, and so there's that. And the, the other challenge is just access. Uh, this is a very busy workforce. They have really long days. They are in the fields, you know, in, during this season right now, it's, it's really hard to get there, get, get for them to get time off. They're required to have one day off now because thanks to this legislation. Um, and so they have that one day off. Um, but it, you know, the day off varies cause they need to, they, you know, they need to, um, take turns on, you know, who's out of the fields. Um, so it's a hard to reach population. Most of them live at their, at the farms. They have employer provided housing, uh, which also places, uh, some, some stress on access. You know, if you, we can't go to home visits, take mm -hmm. on a whole new meeting. And so for us, we've, um, 
We've adopted more of a worker center style model for organizing farm, farm workers, uh, looking to partner with community groups and using community spaces to come together uh, and not just talk about unions, but talk holistically about their needs and making sure that they're aware of all of their rights, not just the organizing rights. Um, many of them don't know that they have access to workers' compensation. They don't realize that they, mm -hmm. if they get in, injured at work that their medical bills are covered by law. Um, and that they, if they can't work, they have access to payments for, you know, uh, to, to wage um, recuperation through the workers' comp system. Um, and so educating them about that, and there are a lot of injuries in farm work. Mm. It's very, very tough work. Uh, very tough work. Um, so that's been, you know, some of the stuff that we've been focusing on. And um, I forgot the second part of your question, so I don't know if you... Where is the campaign going next? Where is it going next? Um, we're just starting. So... We've, um, the farms that we've organized so far are all in Long Island, New York, which is the downstate part of, of the state. And we have the whole upstate area to really get into. Uh, we've, uh, we have some focus in the Hudson Valley, which is um, just north of New York City. Um, very, uh, very rich uh, country, lots of nurseries, lots of um, uh, fruit, vegetable growth, and then in Western New York, where we see a lot more dairy farms, more a, a lot more apple orchards actually around that part near the um, near the Canadian border, um, and so we're we're really just looking to grow statewide. Um, and you know, right now we just won. You know, we recognize that organizing can get us some victories, but some things we need still need to do legislatively. And so when we won the right to overtime pay. Uh, for for the workers, the win legislatively was to overtime pay after 60 hours of work a week, which is still a lot of time to work mm -hmm. to get overtime pay. Um, and just this year, we were able to win overtime pay after 40 uh, hours a week. So they're going to see the same overtime benefits that other workers see. It's phased in, which is unfortunate. Um, but one of the other things we were able to get um, it, from our governor, um, thanks to all the advocacy that we were able to do, is uh, the, the, go the government is actually going to subsidize overtime pay after 40 hours for any farm that pays it. No. And so even though legally they don't ha they're not mandated to pay overtime, they can, and they can recoup all those, you know, all that all that cost um, as as a tax credit. So um, there's no reason why in our contracts we can't have overtime pay after 40 hours. Um, and you know, if we come up with other ways that we can really support workers now um, as we're organizing, we're, we'll we'll take that on. Walking the streets of Manhattan, uh, I can't help but um, smell the waft of marijuana in the streets which makes me think that uh, it's legalized in this uh, <laughs> in, in, in this state yeah. um the union's obviously doing some interesting work uh, with the sale of cannabis uh tell us a bit about that so we are the cannabis union uh here in new york we um had a had the opportunity to become the cannabis union because we were very involved in making medical cannabis legal in the state uh and in so doing um we made sure that our uh, the law required label peace agreements to be part of the requirement in order for you to be licensed just to do business um, in cannabis here in New York. And with these labor peace agreements, which basically require neutrality um, from the employer if workers choose to organize, um, we were able to um, organize and have contracts with, I think, all but one of the medical uh, cannabis companies here in New York. And then um, last year, the state legalized adult use uh, recreational. And so we're in the process of waiting for that to, that market to open up. It is now legal to consume. It's not yet legal to sell. And so uh, in many ways, everybody's turning a blind eye. And where does this cannabis come from? Because it shouldn't be coming from anybody in the state. Um, but uh, the hope is that that market will open up um, will open up uh, in the in the coming months, actually. With the view to then, obviously, the, I guess there would be like dispensaries or shops, kind of like in uh, California when I was yes. at the start of the year. And so you're trying to organise those workers that are selling. 
So yeah, um, again, that legislation that opened up adult use has those labor peace agreements. And so uh, workers who wish to join a union will be able to do so. They need to have those agreements that the, the, they need to have statements of neutrality um, set up an agreement with an actual union, a bona fide union in order to receive that license. And so that's a, for our union, um, that's an amazing opportunity to really grow in this industry, create some real density uh, in the adult use market, really lift up working standards um, or uh, in, in that and lift up wages and um, and benefits and make these like amazing jobs um, for New Yorkers. Can we, um, I want to go a bit broader now mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, talk more about sort of the union movement in a broad sense in the United States. Um, you know, I read in the Times, I think it was back in March actually, that the, your union was successful in uh, unionising. Is it REI stores, which is mm – -hmm. um, well, you explain what an REI store is. I don't know what it stands for. Um, but they are a um, outdoor uh, – outdoor goods uh, uh, retail store. So if you want a tent, a parka um, – your, you know, hiking boots. Um, this is where you'd go um, if you're an outdoorsy person who really wants to have the right gear. Yeah, I think for the Australian audiences, it's because they kind of got like a, they're, they're trying to pitch themselves as being quite progressive as well, yes. don't they? So for Australian audiences, it's kind of like if, if uh, Aussie Disposals uh, shagged uh, Patagonia and they had a child, that would be the REI store. There okay. we go. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Go with me on that one. I will. Um, so you, oh, you guys organized one of those stores. They have hundreds across the country. We're reading about, you know, I think I did some research beforehand. There's 234 Starbucks stores across the country that have now unionized. That's actually quite high. I didn't think that number would be as high as that, but that's remarkable. Yes. Um, we're starting to see a growth in this movement towards workers unionizing in particular companies. Um, talk to us about the trends. What, what's going on in America? What, what's happening right now with people's attitudes towards unions and um, workers' rights? Uh, it's just incredible. Um, with all of those campaigns that you mentioned, um, the one thing that they all have in common is that they are uh, – it's like a grassroots movement. They were all really worker-led, worker worker-initiated, and they themselves chose the union that they wanted to work with. Um, and some are choosing to go the independent route, not wanting to affiliate with any established union, and that's fine. Um, but they're all just realizing that they deserve more, um, whether it was the pandemic, uh, the uh, how workers were being treated, uh, whether it was being laid off and collecting unemployment and realizing that they were collecting more on unemployment than they were previously in a job. Mm. Um, I'm not sure, but there's a, a lot of, um, a, particularly among young people, a lot of enthusiasm for um, making sure that their workplaces are just. Um, and, you know, we, we organize... Um, we organize a lot of bookstores, independent bookstores here in New York, and those are all really also young workers. Um, and what we're seeing is uh, with them, I you know, I just I, I just had a conversation with one of our organizers telling me that when they talk about what they want to bargain for, like they see themselves in these jobs for years. Uh, retail to them isn't a part-time gig for the moment. They would love to be able to make a living and. Uh, do this work for for a, for a while, and uh, and having the kind of standards and you know the kind of wages, benefits, and working conditions that really honor their own values and have the workplace reflect their values uh, is really important to them. And this is you know the the the, the power is with workers mm -hmm. right now. There's uh, not enough workers enough right now uh, around the country. Lots of employers are looking for are still looking for for folks to come in, and so they have workers are in a in a really great place to negotiate their terms. Can I ask you about the relationship that the union movement has with the Democratic Party? Mm. Um, and let me share with you the the experience that it is in Australia. Um, so the the trade union movement is um, is uh, institutionally linked with the Australian Labor Party. Um, uh, you know the the majority of trade unions in Australia affiliate to the Labor Party. They pay an affiliation fee and with that comes votes and with that becomes becomes power. So 50% of the decision-making of the Labor Party as a political organisation is made up of unions. So they're, you know, intrinsically involved in the direction of the Labor Party and with that we, there's an ex expectation 
that when politicians get elected to you know various uh, legislators, whether it be our national parliament or our state parliaments, that they're going to pass worker-friendly or union-friendly legislation. Um, it's not a perfect relationship by any stretch of the imagination. Um, certainly people on the political side have frustrations with the union side and people on the union side have frustrations with the political side. But I think having fort been fortunate enough to travel around the world and see various sort of social democratic or centre-left parties and how they relate with the, with, the, with, the, with the labour base, I think we've probably got the best of it. Um, but it could always be better. Now, here in the United States, I think it's fundamentally different. And I want to get a sense of historically what's been... And when I say historically, I mean in recent times before the Biden administration, what has been the relationship between um, Labor or the union movement and the Democratic Party? Um, I would qualify it as complicated. Um, we don't have that kind of um, structure. Uh, we there's there is no Labor Party. Um, we tend to think of Democrats as labor friendly, but that's not an automatic. It mm. really varies by candidate. Uh, and their commitment to workers and to unions, labor unions in particular, um, varies from candidate to candidate. Um, and so um, what labor tends to do is they uh, they carefully think about who they're going to support. And it's all part of the, our endorsement process to vet candidates best on, uh, based on their positions on whatever labor issues matter to us, which is why in the U.S. you may see some unions who are really supportive of certain Republican candidates because locally these Republican candidates or, or elected officials have delivered for them. Mm. Um, and then other unions have much more success with other other um, elected officials. Um, you know, now um, we have a very strong relationship with the Biden administration. He has from the get-go shown or demonstrated, not just talk the talk, but demonstrated that he really does believe in unions and what difference that makes to to families, um, and so we've had this just amazing opportunity to correct <laughs> a lot of uh, what's been undone in the past, um, and hopefully soon uh, we can start really innovating on what the future can look like. Uh, but you know, until we get our Congress um, aligned, um, it's going to be hard to do that. We can't move legislation, um, and so we're we're we have this amazing um, dialogue with the administration to see what we can do administratively, things that don't require legislation, but he can do either through executive order or through agency regulations. Um, and uh, we haven't had that in a, in a long, long time, mm -hmm. not since, you know, the 1940s when FDR was in power. Yeah, it's funny that, I mean, we all, I love Barack Obama, but he wasn't great. No. on this sort of stuff and it was interesting to see when Biden got elected if there was going to be a change in attitude um not sure if you can answer this one but what are some of those things that if you're in the White House right now if you're in the Oval Office with your RWDSU jacket on you sit down with the president and say Mr President these are the things that we want you to sign into executive using your executive power now what are some of the things that the union movement broadly want to see changed Oh, that's a really hard question because um, I, I think that a lot of what our union needs is 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 to be done legislatively. I was actually thinking about this um, the other day uh, in talking about what the building trades have been able to get out of the Biden administration, and they have been able to move um, quite a lot um, that makes a world of difference to their, to their industries, um, like you know, uh, making sure that companies can't run apprenticeship programs, only unions can, and get actual federal do dollars to run those. Um, that makes a big difference because they're, they're actually getting the union education as they're learning the job rather than the company education. Um, we've, um, we've been able to get um, some resources, some dollars going towards our workers for pandemic relief. Um, we've, uh, we've been able to... Um, I think, you know, having the Biden administration appoint um, NL, uh, officers to the National Labor Relations Board that are more union friendly um, has been made a world of difference for us because that's that's how we 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 win elections. If we could have him move the PRO Act, which would actually transform the labor law in, in the NLRA in, in this country, that would make a world of difference. But he can't do that um, because he's not going to get it through he, Congress. He needs Congress to approve it, and we what, don't have the votes. Tell, just quickly, tell us a bit more about that pro act. What are you What are you looking to get out of that? What's What's What are the centerpieces of that piece of legislation that's going to make life easier for workers and for unions? 
Um, it uh, one, it creates much stronger penalties for union busting and for anti-union activity. Right now, doing that, it's a slap in the hand. Mm-hmm. There's no um, no incentive for employers to to do that. But it also makes it a lot easier to organize that winning that first election. Um, it's the 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 process that's put in place just allows for for workers to to be able to get that first contract a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, you know, you're waiting a year to get that first contract if the company really fights it. Um, and um, um, yeah, I I would have to go, <laughs> have to go back and look at the bullets, but yeah, the main yeah. the main the main piece is that it makes organizing a lot easier. Yeah. Okay. Um, last question before we wrap up. Um, the, 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 I'm just interested, when I started working for the Transport Workers Union, we surveyed a lot of our members at a, at a time when the Conservatives were in power at a national level in Australia and we asked them, you know, who do you vote for? Amongst a whole bunch of other things, obviously. And it was interesting that at that time, uh, I think about 30% of our membership came back to us and said, oh, we, at the last election we voted for the Conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, as an outsider here in the United States and been here for a month, so I'm now an expert. Um, looking at the the left, the broad left um, in the United States, um, you could make an, a, an, a, an assumption that it's very sort of East Coast, West Coast. And I know this is the criticism and a talking point from the right wing groups that the, the left is just a sort of coastal kind of community. Yeah. Um, you know, upper class, elites, educated, that kind of stuff. The union movement obviously have links, strong links into working class people, non-educated people of colour, um, and also middle-class folks as well. Um, do you think that the broad left um, – is, is there a worry that the, the, the right wing, the, the, the Republicans or, or the, just the, the broad right um, could make inroads into the, member, the union membership and start to see – or if, if not, is it already happening – start to see your members or broadly members in unions actually turning out and voting for right-wingers as opposed to – you know, the Democrats, because the Democrats have just moved into this kind of, I don't want to use the word woke and that kind of stuff, but moved into this sort of more, you know, uh, very liberal type politics as opposed to workers' rights. So we already are, we are already seeing um, union members voting for the right, you know, the the right candidate, right-leaning candidate, uh, particularly in the Midwest, uh, rural areas, uh, where maybe they were at once strong manufacturing hubs and jobs have left. Um, they feel ignored, forgotten, um, and uh, find you know the Trump type of messaging appealing. Mm. Uh, we did see a lot of our members vote that way um, during the, the last election, and we're still trying to get them back. Um, and the hard part right now is allowing them to... to to see what difference Biden is making in their day-to-day lives, um, making sure that they're hearing the message. Those of us who watch the news see it, and we see the connections because we follow it. But if you're busy working, mm. um, you may not realize that the reason that they're building that, you know, they're they're renovating that bridge or building that new high-rise down the street, and there's all these jobs coming to your to your community is because of Biden's infrastructure bill. Um, and so we, we need to make those um, those connections. Um, your point about um, about going too far left. Um, I think that there are people who would argue that. Um, I know there. I know in California, there's a lot of conversations around just going too far, particularly around criminal justice. Um, race relations is complicated, and that that can be very divisive um, among among folks. Um, and you know, I think for us, what we what we know is that uh, we can't rush these things. These are uh, cultural changes that need to happen, uh, transformative changes that need to happen, and we really need to build towards them and uh, and and be patient. And so, even though we're in a moment, uh, we can't rush the moment. And um, you know, nevertheless, uh, we can't compromise our values. Mm. So it's really it's really walking a fine line. Like where do you where do you push? Where do you support really progressive issues because you know it's the right thing to do and that's where the future is. And then how do you how do you hold uh, a safe space for those who aren't ready? Uh, 
but are very comfortable with what they have um, and what else can be can be can we be working with them on mm. so they can see the kind of changes that they need to see in their lives in their workplaces but also in their communities I mean at the end of the day I don't know I don't know what if it's easier or, or, or what I think I, I think what the mistake that we make is um, assuming that we can pitch an idea or a candidate because what what we think is right they should think is right um, at the end of the day, it's organizing no matter what you do, even mm. in political organizing. And what we should, what we always need to be doing is listening to our members and what they're really worried about uh, and making sure that we are picking, like, you know, endorsing candidates and that they're part of that endorsement process, but that we're endorsing candidates that are really going to make a difference for them. The hard part is the long-term visioning and knowing that when somebody's saying something, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they are going to do. It may just be what they want to say to get those votes at that time, uh, right at that yeah. time. And so doing the education on the critical thinking and analyzing where does this person really come from? How does that shape what they're really going, you know, what their intentions really are? Um, and getting through that is, is the hard part, which takes time. Well, um, I wish you all the best of luck with the work that you guys are doing. Um, you know, as a, a union organizer back home, um, it, uh, I, I thought I had a tough job, but I tell you what, trying to organise in the United States in the conditions that you guys have to operate um, is not easy work um, and we wish you the best of luck in all of the, the things that you've t we've talked about today but I'm sure there's so much other areas that the union organise in. Um, if, you, if, if anyone's ever in New York, I know, I know the steward always says this when he meets a delegation, what shops should you shop at? You should go to Macy's. You should go to Bloomingdale's. H&M um, and Zara are unionized. Uh, you should go to Zabar's. That's a fine gr uh, gourmet food um, in the Upper West Side. Um, and uh, where else can you go? Uh, feel free to go to any medical cannabis facility if you need uh, <laughs> if you need your dose of cannabis while you're here. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Always like to end on a high note. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, and as I said before, we wish you all the best of luck in the upcoming campaigns. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on.